galactic empire, hyperspace, positronic brains, androids. These ideas developed decades earlier than you might think, and they are the legacy of one man, Isaac Asimov. I'm Jason Stark, host of Galaxy. Join me, along with my friends Stephanie and Jacob Yunker, as we dive into the novels and stories of one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. From iRobot to Foundation to the Caves of Steel and beyond, we explore the narratives, the meanings, and the legacy, one book at a time. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit galaxypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are going to conclude our coverage of Silhouette, really a, a mini-series <laughs> in, in the Clay Temple universe, uh, with our discussion episode. And for just a minute here at the top of the show, before we get into that discussion and some potentially heated arguments I think that we're going to have that'll be a lot of fun, we just want to say, again, a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Yeah, thank you so much for the support you give our network. If you're not a supporter of ours on Patreon, please check us out. Take a look at the bonus episodes we have available. A lot of great stuff from the whole Clay Temple network. Uh, other ways you can support us if you can't uh, on Patreon is to review us on multiple platforms that our show is available on and also tell people about us if you like our show. Uh, with that Let's just go right into the discussion. We have a lot to cover, a lot of work to do today. And I think the best place to start is uh, maybe to not make the same mistake we've made many times in our discussions, <laughs> which is which is to say we have maybe different interpretations of the story, and uh, then we're talking at cross purposes. So I want to start uh, with really a summary of the story, and uh, then from there go into world building and talk about what exactly is going on. And with the summary, I want to summarize the story from a completely different perspective from what we get in the way that Wolf has written it, maybe in a kind of chronological order. Glenn, when I get to the end of it, you can let me know if I've left anything out. But I do want to jumpstart the conversation about world building and the, and the type of world that Wolf has situated Johan in in this way. So this is my take on the story. 17 years prior to the events of the novella, uh, which takes place in the mid-23rd century, uh, crew got on a big ship and went in search of a new planet to rescue humanity from the Earth that humans have destroyed. That's maybe the understanding of the mission that we get in this story. For those on Earth who have just experienced a massive war and are experiencing famine every 10 years or so, Hundreds of years have passed, maybe with no one returning, or it could be that maybe every nation has sent out their own ship and we're just situated within the German ship of this plan to rescue humanity. Once this ship passes Pluto, people on the ship began creating weird cults and worshiping cosmic beings. Uh, the ship's computer, which was meant to keep everyone on track, got junked by the captain, all sorts of factions and cults uh, emerge as a result of this. A botanist learns how to make drugs, and psychedelic drug use becomes the norm. Uh, people kill themselves often, and other people are taken from the 
freezer from cryosleep and thawed out and put on duty rosters. Uh, eventually, 17 years now have passed, the ship arrives in the Algol star system, and a new planet is found. This planet is coined Neuerdrat, which means New Earth Wire, uh, and a weight team is sent down. When the exploration ship returns to the big ship, Johan finds that lights are going out in his room, uh, though this darkening of room leads to broader awakenings in Johan's mind of what is going on in the ship in general. Maybe this is the first kind of breakdown he experiences. And it's not clear if the darkening of his room is a faculty of the lights actually going out or if this is the first emergence of this shadow character who is using its form to hide the sources of light because uh, the creatures on this planet, however they've determined how to survive or found a way to survive, or find a way to make new life, are not able to really exist in direct light. The plants can't do it. Maybe the sentient creatures cannot either. Uh, from there, Johan goes about his business, but he ends up with this spectral companion, this shadow, this silhouette, who helps him go down to the planet's surface, where he gets wounds from climbing around in the caves that could support human life, perhaps, and also are the place where other life is spawned from, new single-celled organisms. Sometimes Johan loses time, and in this, in these moments, the familiar spirit takes over for him. Sometimes the spirit acts while he is awake, uh, with its own body, with its own shadow power. And because of the presence of this spirit, which other people have noticed... Johan is visited by a cosmic cult and is made aware of uh, plans of mutiny on the ship. He runs these plans by his would-be paramour, Grit, who is unconcerned because she's part of one of these strange groups, or maybe several of them, and she says they're just for fun. And the captain is concerned about not those cults, but another contingent of the ship that thinks they should still be listening to the ship's computer. The ship's computer should be running anything. Johan somehow ends up siding with the ship's computer on some level or the ship's computer people. Uh, this leads to a mutiny. He throws the captain off the ship uh, and with the space marines on his side, Johan takes control of the ship and increases its survival chances. So that is basically the story as I see it. I know you have a different perspective about Johan siding with the computer people. To be fair, I'm not sure Johan is actually siding with anybody, but his sense of survival and self-preservation. Um, and maybe there's an, even another way of looking at this story from the shadow's perspective, the sentient life on this planet. But I just want to ask, Glenn, is this your understanding of the story? And what kind of world building elements that do you see are important that maybe I left out, if any? Yeah, I certainly completely disagree with your understanding of everything going on with Johan in the third act, but I'm going to save that for last because I do want to address one of the world building uh, items that you you mentioned first. I, I won't bring up anything that you didn't in include there, but uh, you at the very start talked about the, the question of which authority, what type of government sent out this ship? You were speculating whether this is maybe the German ship. I think we know definitively that that is not true, uh, that we, especially when we combine this up with the, the Blue Mouse, that 
that world is a world that has a United Nations government. We, we get that explained to us in silhouette as well. And so I don't think that this is a German ship. I think this is a United Nations ship. We also get this hint here uh, in the story that these people are not actually native Germans. That even though they all have German names and, and presumably are speaking German, it seems that Grit, at the very least, was named Joan by her mother so that she's a native English speaker, or at least her mother's a native English speaker, but that for some reason, these people have all learned to speak German as their their primary language, or at least as their official language. And so I think Wolf might be envisioning here that in the future, when there is a single world government, uh, the United Nations, that... German will be the world language uh, for some reason. And that, that war that we saw in the Blue Mouse, right, was the United Nations forces versus some uh, some rebels. And I think that we're, we're meant to understand here that especially if that is the same war that Johan was a part of, and I've, I've come around to that way of thinking since, uh, since we did the last reca- recap episode, uh, then we can infer that the United Nations won that war, I believe. Yeah, that's an excellent point and is most likely the case. It is strange that we are using all of these German names and references, though I think that Wolf is doing that more for the purposes of literary illusion than uh, and built the kind of world out of his want to use certain literary references rather than uh, making a point about their nations are still separate. And it could be that because that we are in just a more German section of the ship. Uh, we don't know exactly how big this ship is or what the crew count actually is, but Johan knows that there are lots of parts of the ship and lots of people he doesn't know and doesn't interact with. Right. And I should make clear that none of this language stuff is going on in the Blue Mouse. In fact, I think it's pretty clear that the narrator or the, the primary character of the Blue Mouse is is using English as his language. So I think that you're absolutely right that this is this is an idea that that Wolf had for this story and because of the Faust stuff going on here. And the connection between the two stories is I don't think meant to be complete and uh, precise and exact. But yeah, I think we need to talk now about the third act and what Johan is up to. I don't think that Johan is a part of the mutiny. I don't think that he is one of the computer people. I don't think that he decides to make himself the captain by locking the, the, the captain out of the ship by locking her on this tender until they're in that corridor or at perhaps maybe the earliest, the moment when he's on the bridge and sees the video of Helmet and understands what's going on, understands that perhaps there is maybe less of an actual uh, mutiny than there seems to be. I don't think that he's been recruited by the computer or anything like that. And in fact, I think to the last moment, he is trying to get the captain to be the captain he wants her to he wants her to to be to follow the regulations to believe in the mission the way that he believes in it and to to understand physics the way that he understands it and so on and it's not until the very end when she disappoints him again really three times here at the end that he decides that the only way to save all of humanity is for him to take over the ship by taking advantage of this situation but that none of this was premeditated by him and and even back in the the last recap episode, you and I read, I think, even just the language of some of the the sentences differently. And let me let me point out what I'm looking at here. So this is when Johan is talking to the computer terminal as he's revealing that he's been aware of what's been going on. To the terminal, he said, Helmet is dead. You shouldn't have shown him. We killed him in the hangar. 
And you read this as, as Johan chastising the computer for making a mistake that could have given up the game that they're playing together, given up their mission that they're sharing together. But I don't think that's the sense of that at all. I think he's explaining to the computer where the computer went wrong and lost to him, lost to Johan, that Johan has won against the computer, not won with the computer, and he's explaining how he won. He's explaining the mistake that the, the computer made. And some of that maybe is just inferences that you and I make in the way that we uh, place emphasis on words and maybe understand emotions in people. But I also think that logically, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense of the scene with Helmet, if Helmet is indeed one of the computer people, or at the very least, a mutineer, if Johan is joined up with the computer people as well, why is he unaware of that? Why is that coming to, why is that situation coming to blows? And why is he not able at some point to, to better coordinate with the, the com- computer? Yeah, I agree with you. I have, I feel it's my duty to make some kind of reading, a strong reading of this story. <laughs> uh, but I, at the end of the day, what I think is is Johan is representing uh, more of a humanist perspective rather than a uh, religious one. And we're going to talk about some of these representations of God or uh, devils or whatever when we talk about Goethe's Faust and what Wolf is doing with that in the story. But I think Johan is much more of a... Uh, modernist, a kind of uh, humanist in some ways, who is taking the side of humanity against these forces, maybe a kind of uh, Promethean man, a romantic hero in that sense, more than anything else. And that is my deep reading of the story, though it's much harder to get at without first starting from a place of what side is Johan on. Um, and, and I do like your reading about how Johan is trying through the right channels to make everything work with the chain of command and getting the ship back to where it needs to be. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit because this story is really caught up with an ethic and a moral that's hidden in the background, or at least a morality, maybe not a moral. Uh, but continuing along with this kind of summarization and world building, I want to ask you what your thoughts are about how life survived on Neuerdrat, or did life survive? We, we talked about how this story has some parallels with Solaris in that this is a crew of people who are encountering, encountering a planet that has, a, that has an incomprehensible type of life form. So did life survive on Neuerdrat? What would be like the shadow consciousness's perspective of this story? Is life being remade on the planet? Why is Johan interested in going down to the planet and then uh, interested in getting away from it? And what does that have to do with the whole mission of this ship? Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, these are the core questions of the the story. I'll start with the 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 questions about life on the planet. I mean, I would take at face value that the vegetation is there as it's described to us, and also that there are indeed airborne bacteria. The question is, though, what are these shadows? And and maybe a question we might ask is, are the shadows even 
real. We do see, and, and Johan himself is convinced by this, right? Uh, we do see other people external to Johan reacting to the shadow, to believing that Johan is in communion with some kind of cosmic being. Now, it's unclear to me how much we can really trust that. I mean, this is a Gene Wolfe story, right? So the layers of of perspective, the, the layers of subjectivity maybe in the narration are something that we might need to solve in order to really uh, determine whether those reactions are an objective thing happening in the story or not. But I'm going to proceed at face value and assume that they, they are, right? And so that the shadow creature that is attached to Johan and maybe one that's attached to Grit as well is a real thing that's going on. But the question is, where does it come from? What is it? Uh, we have certainly been assuming that it comes from the planet, that it comes from Neurodrot, but there's this whole contingent of people running around the ship talking about things that live in space, that don't live on planets. So it's possible that that's really what these shadow people are. I do think that we are meant also to ask the question whether or not the the shadows are the bacteria, whether they're the airborne bacteria that create a kind of hallucination that seems maybe to be what's going on when the away team has this vision of the city. But I will say that if that's what's going on, then that does not at all account for the fact that people external can see the shadow, right? In fact, so I think that that would be a real problem with that reading, with reading the 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 shadows as a manifestation of being infected with these airborne bacteria. So those are all the the things that I think are being hinted at, being inferred, being suggested in the text. I am having trouble coming down on any side of them. And so I'm wondering, one, what you think, Brandon, and then two, what the, uh, I think, mountain of scholarly literature on this story says about it as well. We're going to get to this question in a little bit. It's interesting because the scholarly literature doesn't talk that much about what shadows are. Mark Aramini makes a really good point uh, where he refers to Goethe's texts on science and plant life, um, which is a big part of this story about how the shadows are a kind of indigenous consciousness or uh, population on the planet. Uh, because of the way that the plants are represented as avoiding light and the way the shadows are uh, really the result of light blockage. They they live in the place that can't be seen and can't be approached. Uh, they can only be, they can't, they really cannot be seen by the person they're inhabiting. Um, but I think there's a lot more symbolic depth going on here when we think about the way character, the female characters are named and some psychological elements, especially because the epigraph to this story is from a book called A Psychological <laughs> Shipwreck. And I wonder if Wolf got more of an idea from the title of that story than uh, he's using the text itself. Though, as we discussed in our first episode, the text of that story has a lot in common with this story. I, I The next thing I just want to talk about, I, and I think we should continue to take things at face value for now before we delve into uh, a lot of other topics. We talked about Johan's unreliability as a narrator or at least a point of view character in this story. And that makes me wonder if you think Johan's claims about Earth are credible to you, if he's right about the uh, like Einsteinian idea of time that they're never going to they're not going back to the same Earth, if Earth is completely destroyed, if all of the things that he valued, you know, morally, ethically, philosophically are gone because they were already dying when he left Earth. Is Johann right about Earth or is he using this 
these claims about Earth, these claims about Earth to justify his position, uh, his stance and his posture towards what's happening on the ship. I definitely think he's right about Earth, though my conviction on that point is extra textual. It is simply the fact that Wolf is concerned about this future, that Wolf is writing a lot about this future, about this environmental catastrophe or a series of different types of environmental catastrophes that he predicts are are likely or at least too likely to to happen in our very real future. We have seen this time and again in this period of his writing as as being central, as being a central part of his vision of the future. It's a central concern that he has about the now, about the way that we are are living in the the early and, and mid 1970s here. It's in almost every single story that we have covered in this batch of of stories. Certainly there is no story in this batch that we've covered that posits some kind of optimistic environmental future. So I'm going to take that at face value as well. I think Johan, one, I think he believes that that's the case. And I think that Wolf believes that that is the inevitable outcome of the way things were looking in the early 23rd century when these people left, for sure. Yeah, it's certainly a pessimistic view, but I think we can use this idea of the new earth that Wolf presents in this story as a doubling effect of our own earth and seeing that this was also destroyed by conscious beings as well, that there was some catastrophe that took place. Uh, and Johan is thinking, we've just got to do better. If you've got consciousness, you have a responsibility to make things better, not worse. Uh, we're going to talk about Johan's belief system in a little bit as well. This is all just setting the table <laughs> conversation, <laughs> though we're already you know 20 minutes into this and getting in, making sure we're on the same page as the story. The last question I really have for this section about the story about the world building, about our expectations as, as readers and what we get on the page is, where do you think the story is going from here? Where is Johan taking the ship? Do you think he's going back to Earth? And uh, before you answer the question, I just want to point out again the imagery we have throughout the story of the Roman pantheon of gods, which is we only get two gods. Uh, we have Neptune, and storm imagery and Neptune imagery suffuse the story. It's in three distinct places. The first is when Johann is talking to the overmonitor. He has this image of Neptune, almost like a fountain type of image. Then when he's taking, then when he's talking to the captain, he has this sense of a woman clinging to the crystal mast of a ship in a sea in storm. And then at the end of the story, we have this storm imagery where land is the enemy. And that could indicate that one, uh, he's symbolically taking off his sandals to float in the on the bridge to show his solidarity with being in space, with remaining on the ship. Um, that's for now, until this core problem with humanity is solved, it's not safe to go back to the planet. Um, but then we also have the imagery of Pluto which is brought up twice, one in reference to the experience of the encounter of these cosmic beings who are outside of the ship uh, that the cults believe in, and then also that leaving the solar system, leaving Plutonian space is really the point of no return of this ship. Uh, and, and we're going to bring this up again in a little bit, but I wonder if we're not dealing with a, a kind of a Neid 
type of situation, which we we've seen Wolf bring up in Fifth Head of Cerberus, uh, which we've seen Wolf bring up in Fifth Head of Cerberus, that we can maybe lean on that type of story uh, of the the sailor, the shipwrecked sailor, uh, the captain of a doomed vessel, to understand the ending of the story. Given that we are given this Neptune and Pluto imagery this secret roman pantheon <laughs> asserting itself throughout the story yeah as you've been going uh, uh, you know behind the scenes how the sausage gets made here i've got a little notebook out in front of me and i've been uh, writing little notes to myself to make sure i address all the points that you're raising and for this one i wrote down one word and it was aeneid so i think we're on the same page uh, here and yeah as you say we know that wolf is thinking a lot about the aeneid if not necessarily uh, reading it at this point and yeah i think that's what's happening i think this last line of the story tells us that what Johan wants to do is just live on ships, that he thinks that planets are bad for humanity in some way, which I think is a real uh, fatalistic worldview, is not an optimistic worldview at all, but that he thinks that the way to save humanity is simply to keep this ship going. And of course, and and now that the Marine Commandant has been uh, brought up out of cryogenic freezing, the two of them can be the people who have retained the values that they took with them from Earth and can set right what has gone wrong on this ship by reinstituting the the discipline and the the values that they all had when they left, right? So Johan is going to follow the regulations. He's going to clean up some of the things that are not working on the ship anymore, right? Uh, you know, I, I don't know, probably including the book swap thing. He's going to put that library back together and so on. And he's going to he's going to implement really a kind of culturally conservative political program here on the ship. And they're just going to live on the ship that they're, they're not going to necessarily search for a planet to go colonize because he doesn't think that uh, that's going to save them. And he certainly doesn't believe that earth is worth going back to. And so I don't think that's where they're going. So it's really interesting to me as well that we don't get anything specific about the new course. And and what I really mean is that Wolf has interestingly here passed up an opportunity to quote Peter Pan here to set the coordinates as uh, second star to the left and straight on till morning to just say, we're just going in a direction just to go in a direction. Because uh, we know Wolf has used Peter Pan before. Also, that would be a real Star Trek move, though this predates Star Trek's use of that. I will say that doesn't happen until uh, uh, the early 1990s in Star Trek VI when uh, Captain Kirk says that same same line to do the same thing. But I'm interested that Wolf didn't take that opportunity here to really cement that we're just pointing into space and going. Right. And I, and I think if we're going with this Aeneid sense of the story that that's almost hopeful they will inevitably find some place once they fix some of these problems that they'll be the right people maybe to be in the right place to found something new but as things stand i don't think johan himself can justify finding another planet he also thinks you know planets are the mistakes of the universe (laughs) and that they probably won't and that Life really needs to be lived here on this ship, though it cannot be uh, Pleasure World, Pleasure Island, the satellite of love, whatever <laughs> it is. It's got to be something that benefits everybody. And um, yeah, I think I think you're right about that, that he is just setting a course. This is stuff we're going to dive into a little bit more as the discussion goes on. But you pointed that Johan has some maybe things he wants to clean up on the ship, and that is definitely the case, uh, though cultural conservatism may not win out over all, 
Um, and that's because I think the next big standalone element of the story, this thing we have to talk about that we've brought up so many times, is the, the gender and sexual politics of this story. And decide whether or not Wolf is critiquing with it, whether he's empathizing with it, whether he thinks changes can be made. Uh, that's Wolf the writer, but also what Johan's what Johan thinks he can really impact and change over time. But I also want to throw a wrench into the works here before we get going on this question. <laughs> I want to read what Wolf has written about the stories that are found in the collection Endangered Species because the introduction seems to be caught up with gender on some level. Wolf makes a remark about how the first storytellers were almost certainly women. Uh, then he goes on to say that he wrote these stories for his audience, not for the benefit of some critic or academic. He's not writing in order to be criticized or to be admired or to admire his own cleverness at a later date, though he does occasionally get up to that activity. <laughs> uh, he just thinks writing is fun. But who is the you that he is describing? Who's the audience? Who is the reader he's going after? And this is what Wolf writes. Uh, this, what I'm going to read, are all quotes, but it's full of ellipses. You can read the whole introduction to this collection if you have a copy. But this is uh, what I've taken away here. Wolf writes this about the you, the reader of these stories. You are both a woman amused by men and a man enthralled by women. Your lively imagination is governed by reason. You find it difficult to make friends, though you are a good friend to those you have made. At certain times you have feared you are insane, at others that you are the only sane person in the world. You are patient and yet eager. The same authorities who insist upon beginnings, middles, and ends declare that great literature is about love and death, while mere popular fiction like this is about sex and violence. One reader's sex, alas, is another's love, and one's violence another's death. I cannot tell you whether you will find love or sex in the Nebraskan and the Nereid, death or violence in silhouette, or as I hoped when I wrote it, new life, for there is more to life than sex and a fresh beginning. Before we launch into what is happening in, in the sexual politics of this story, did this introductory bit of writing shift anything you're thinking about the story or thought about it not just with regards to sexual politics and the gender dynamics of the story, but about the story in general. I mean, to me, it sounds like he's describing Johan. Yeah, yeah <laughs> some exactly. Of section. Yeah, that's what I thought precisely. That that is a character sketch of Johan, which is really interesting in that it, it suggests here. I, th I think one of the big takeaways that I'm I'm getting from this is that he really likes silhouette and maybe thinks silhouette is the you know, pinnacle story in this collection. That might be why it's the last story in Endangered Species as well, that the collection maybe is kind of uh, built around silhouette as being the sort of centerpiece of it. Uh, but yeah, so I definitely agree that that is described Johan. And I think also this notion that the story is supposed to be about new life and fresh beginnings is really interesting because we can take new life as meaning a fresh beginning, right? That I've uh, I've got a new life now that I'm the, the captain or, or now that Yoha is the captain and uh, the ship is being kind of reset. Uh, that might be a, a new life as a fresh beginning. But there is also new life in this story in the Star Trek sense of it, in the to seek out new life and new civilizations. We've met new life forms, at least one, potentially two 
in this story. Well, really, I guess more than that, at, at least at least two, potentially three in this story. I, I was discounting the vegetation, I suppose. And the fact that Wolf has included that in his comments here about this story in the introduction suggests at the very least that I've maybe discounted the extent to which the life forms are at the core of this story. Right. I mean, I, I was thinking about this as well, because the story is called Silhouette, but we have done very little in terms of looking at the narrative of this story as being about this shadow form. Um, and yet the title of the story indicates that that is the focus of the story, this this new life. Um, but the way that Wolf couches this idea of new life with our lives being more about more than just about sex also really highlights for me the fact that people are primarily engaging in uh, like sex magic rituals and sex is not reproductive. It's not a activity that's about creating a new life. And I think that that is a simple to Wolf of something about the way the society is functioning. And, and we'll get to that in a little bit uh, because I want to talk about what Wolf maybe is thinking about the counterculture of America at this point. Uh, but before we get to that, let's just talk about what is going on in general with sex and gender in this story. And again, I'm highlighting this and we're talking about this issue because it is all over the story. In the recap episodes, we talked a lot about the duty roster for sexual encounters that seem exclusively male to female oriented. The fact then is that this roster is for straight people. And maybe that's an assumption that we've made based on the fact that Emil and Carl, the medical officer, have males as their object of desire, being men themselves, and don't get to participate in this uh, compelled sex duty roster, which is kind of all the rage on the ship, in the same way that straight people do. But apart from there being maybe homosexuality or bisexuality represented in this story, sex is also part of a larger power dynamic. Sex is compelled by a person who is on top of the power dynamic rather than by rather than being initiated by people of the same rank or uh, natural fraternizations or organic uh, relationships don't seem to happen. Higher ranking officers can and do compel sexual encounters from their underlings. This is evident by the captain calling Johan to her quarters when earlier in the story we thought it was just Johan who was being gross with Gert, but he's also a victim as well, if we're calling this a kind of cycle of victimhood, a cycle of abuse. And then when you toss the open use of drugs into these encounters, uh, we're really swimming in deep waters. It's rough territory. And finally, we also commented that it, it's a general pattern of writing, uh, of not just male writers, but this happens in a lot of literature and a lot of books as shorthand, that women are described based on their looks or their bodies and men based on their intelligence or minds. Uh, we've seen evidence of this in the story, but Glenn, I wonder if you saw this subverted, this style of writing being subverted, if, if Gene Wolfe is purposefully using this type of description and subverting it for the sake of this story. I do think that's what's going on. I don't think that this is Gene Wolfe's worldview. I don't think that Gene Wolfe is writing this as a as a type of 
reality effect so that readers will buy into the other speculative fiction stuff that uh, maybe a reader doesn't necessarily, maybe a reader's not necessarily on board with stories in the future and stories about spaceships and alien life forms. But I can see that this is very much like the real world because women and men are behaving the same way that they do in my world. I don't think that that's what's going on here at all. I think that Wolf is being almost deeply sarcastic, deeply mocking uh, as he's as he's describing the female characters in this story this way. Yeah, I think so as well. And I think that the scene that kind of clinches this, that said, that demonstrates to us that Wolf is not being a lazy writer by engaging in this pattern is the scene we get with uh, both Emil and the doctor where Johan is subjected to Emil's gaze um, where he is being come on to in an uncomfortable way. He's doing everything he can to rebuff Emil and he's kind of cruel to Emil in order to get Emil to get the picture that Johan is not interested in having sex with him. And then we see the doctor, Carl, comment on Johan's body while he's doing a medical examination, how virile it is, how muscular he is, uh, how like how good he looks, uh, which is not something a doctor should be doing, <laughs> how much the doctor wishes he could be on the sex duty roster uh, as well. This is, I think, Wolf being highly conscious of the way he's writing these men and women in this story though the women are all subjected to Johan's male gaze as well. They're all described in terms of their potential for being a sexual partner or a capacity for breeding in terms of recognizing their, you know, bust to hip ratio and things like that. The captain is really the only one who escapes this. Uh, and this is engaging with this power dynamic uh, because her rank is rooted on the is rooted in a class structure of women of higher ranks being given more food, being taller. And we meet another woman like this in the story as well, uh, where Wolf is a mixing class and politics and power all into this really complex um, amalgamation of one thing. I mean, this is one section of the story where Johan is not thinking about the multiple layers of society that are playing into what makes sex happen between people, but it's just trying to get sex. And I think Wolf is maybe examining some of these unreflective views about sex that are uh, predominant in our culture, maybe predominant in all civilizations, <laughs> uh, which is fine. But um, I don't know, Glenn, what do you make of all the sex stuff in the story? Why is it here? What is it communicating to you? Well, I think you're absolutely right to keep pointing to the the, the counterculture of the, the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, it might not even be fair by the time that we're dealing with the 1970s to really call that counterculture anymore, but just that this is the, the, the youth culture, perhaps, a culture of people who are younger than Gene Wolfe, for sure. The, the free love, the uh, having sex to, to have sex with uh, multiple sexual partners. I mean, not necessarily at this, the same time, but, but in one's life. And... Johan here is the alternative to that. He's the stereotypical 1950s uh, TV person, right? He's almost the stereotypical 1950s TV dad, I guess. That he's a hardcore monogamist, and in fact, this is what Grit chastises him for. He clearly is on 
the the lookout for a wife, right, or, or a real romantic partner, and not just someone to have sex with because having sex is a human need. That that sex is a part of the the things that we need in our life, and that there's there's this system on the ship to let everyone have sex and have sexual release and to keep everyone mentally healthy on the ship. That's not what he wants. What he wants is a romantic partner, a, a wife, and he's on the lookout for that. And as our story opens, it's pretty clear that he has identified Grit as the person he would like to have that relationship with. And even the very first indication that we get of this weird system of appointment books indicates that Johan has only been making appointments with Grit, that he is waiting the kind of mandatory time period before he's allowed to make grit to compel grit to sleep with him again before doing so, but is not using that intervening time at all to make appointments with any of the other women. And that that really makes grit uncomfortable. That grit is perfectly comfortable with having sex with him. If he is participating in this whole system and having sex with other people, the way that she also is doing that and is really uncomfortable with his clear interest in monogamy and his clear interest in having monogamy with her. And I think that this is part of his heroism, right? This is part of the heroism of Johan here is that he's going to abolish almost certainly, right? If we're writing a sequel to this story, I would believe, I believe completely that he's going to abolish this system, that we are going to have a return to spouseness. We're going to have a return to husbands and wives, and that we're also going to have a return to reproduction, that that's what it's going to mean to live on the ship that we're going to have a fully functioning human civilization on this ship again, that he's going to turn this ship into a generational ship with families, that it's going to be a home for people, that he's going to put life back together the way that it was on Earth and maybe even better than it was on Earth. Yeah, I get that sense as well. And and that really comes out in the way that grit chastises Johan, as we've pointed out, for being old-fashioned uh, because he, one, views sex as possession, uh, this kind of Victorian idea. And she's, you know, like when you put your hands on the body of a woman, you make too much of it. Uh, And I don't know if Johan can escape that notion and whether that's culturally conditioned or a natural part of the kind of chemicals that are released, the bonding chemicals that are released during sex. Johan is certainly in some ways indoctrinated or has received this sense of attitude has received an attitude about sex that when you have sex with somebody it counts for something he's got some sense of the mystery of sexual union just beyond the mechanics of it uh this is something that walker percy kind of points out in his books when he's uh trying to encounter and empathize with the movement that has moved that has decided that sex is purely an appetitive desire that is an appetite that can be sated and nothing more. I I don't think either Gene Wolfe or Walker Percy, for that matter, would quibble with the idea that sex is appetitive, but the weighing of the scales, the kind of thumb on the scale of culture that says that's all it is, is something that uh, Wolfe has a problem with for sure. And, And we also see in the story that Johann's object of desire shifts from Grit to Goethe, his yeoman, by the end of the story. And by the time that's happening, we get more of Goethe in the story. And 
Gerda, as I said, was his yeoman, but now he's thinking of her more like a wife. And she is the one that he promises to go back for once he gets the ship in order. What do you think is going on with this shift from Grit to Gerda as the uh, object of desire? I think Wolf is setting this up here as a really actually kind of classic love story in which there's uh, the main character is pining for the unattainable person. In this case, it's a, it's a man pining for an unattainable woman that he's sexually attracted to, maybe uh, attracted to her personality, her charisma as well. But he's way more into her than she's into him. And the whole time he's been ignoring the other woman who is into him, maybe the way that he's into the the other woman. Well, let, let, let's stop using other woman here. That Johan is into Grit, who is not very interested in him, and who he's not going to be able to marry. He's not going to be able to have the type of relationship with that he wants. But the whole time this has been going on, Gerda has been looking at Johan, perhaps in the same way that Johan is looking at Grit, and in the end, Johan realizes that this infatuation that he has for. I don't know, manic pixie dream girl, something like that is kind of hollow. In fact, not just kind of hollow is definitely hollow and it's not actually based on anything and that he's been ignoring someone in his life who is the exact sort of person that he's been he's been trying to make the object of his infatuation into. And so it's that love story, I guess, right? That's the, or at least it's that romance story, that rom-com story where he suddenly realizes that the person he's best suited for has been you know, standing next to him the whole time. And also, hey, you're in luck because she's super into you and you've been ignoring it. Right. I think that's exactly what's going on. And I think that's evident that Johan is over grit when she gets taken away by the shadow. Uh, and we're going to talk about whether the shadow is real or not, uh, though we both think it is real in the story, but we're going to look at the symbolic meaning of the shadow and whether uh, this shadow is the same shadow that, whether Grit's shadow is the same shadow that Johan has and is representative of his maybe will in the same way. But when Grit disappears, Johan doesn't think like, oh man, like there goes my wife, the shadow took her away, there's like my love interest. What he thinks is, you know what I haven't been thinking a lot about? How much she's into drugs and sex and being part of weird religious cults, you know? (laughs) So like that moment is a real uh, sea change for him, I think, in his understanding of who Grit is as a person more than just being merely a container that holds his ideas about what she ought to be. Right. I mean, this is this is high school. And in fact, I was thinking about this the whole time that this ship is high school. It is the Kafka-esque science fiction nightmare of high school on a spaceship for 17 straight years where everyone seems really immature about relationships. And right. So you just get infatuated with someone because that's a thing that happens to teenagers. And you try to make the person you're infatuated with be the type of person that you would actually want to have some kind of romantic relationship or even real partnership with rather than actually looking for the person who maybe shares some of your same interests, your same values, same dispositions and going from there. Right. But that's the revelation that Johan has at the end. And so it's a hyper accelerated story of maturity of entering into adulthood after a really protracted adolescence, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's quite literally a story of awakening, uh, we have the character basically waking up at the beginning of the story and of uh, 
maturity may be represented as, as I'll make an argument for in just a little bit, uh, the integration of the various parts of the psyche, at least as, as Jung understands it. A few more things to go, though, with this uh, sex and gender politics of the story. There is this one character that I want to point out who has no definable gender, at least to Johan. They could be intersex. We don't know, and neither does Johan. What do you think Wolf has done by introducing this character into this story? Um, does it have larger thematic relevance? Is what does it represent? Or is I, I have to think it means something because of the focus of sex and gender in this story. Yeah, I agree. I think it does have to mean something, and I suspect it. it it's a representation of just how bad things have gotten on the ship, right? I think that Johan. I think this is probably true of Gene Wolfe, the person, certainly Gene Wolfe, the the person in the 1970s, of having this cultural conservatism and wanting people to present themselves to the world as the identity category that they naturally belong to, I guess maybe is the way that I think Wolf might have, have thought about that in the way that Johan might have thought about it as well. And so meeting someone who he can't visually put into a gender box, into one of the only two gender boxes that exist for, for Johan is unsettling to him and is a sign, I think, that things have gone too far on the ship in terms of the, the, the sexual revolution. I think you're right about that. And I don't think that it just extends to uh, the gender norms or wanting people to represent their gender, their uh, biological gender in society. I think this extends to the, the kind of corruption of power structures as well. We see Johan throwing away his rank. We see people walking around without rank. Um, I think for Johan to throw away his rank is so that he can gain rank. But when all of these people come into his little uh, room where he lives on the ship, they're all living out of regulations. None of them have rank. And I think that this whole scene represents a kind of uh, dangerous alliance between people who interact with one another uh, on in, in terms of categories that draw them together that miss the point of what people are for and what they're on earth to do, what they're there to do. And this is a symbol of a, a kind of a deep corruption of order that is taking place in the scene. And I think that this character with no identifiable gender represents that maybe on the, on the sexual level. Well, the people one of which we know must be high ranking because she's a woman of the same stature as the caption, as the captain, uh, which is a, a signifier in itself, uh, all have gone without rank and have allied themselves with a mission that isn't about the common good. It's not about what is good for all people. How do my actions benefit others? It's a, it's a dark alliance, really. And I think that Wolf is using this character to highlight the uh, corruption of the sexual order maybe uh, on the ship and maybe in the in the counterculture as well and and all of this is caught up in what we've been talking about and hinted at a few times with wolf engaging with popular representations of the american counterculture you know the men with long hair wearing these long flowy blouses the changes of fashion you know something that 
also was the case in Annie Hall, men and women wearing uh, versions of each other's clothes, but that fit the body of the gender or do away with gender entirely. We can see this happen with people like, you know, David Bowie uh, (laughs) blowing up in pop culture as well, uh, that Wolf is engaging with these popular representations of androgyny, maybe of, uh, of free love. And so we talked about in an episode about how th- these representations of America, the American counterculture and really Western counterculture could be married with the brief that Wolf got for this collection called the new Atlantis. I connected that with like new aginess, but I think, uh, looking at what Wolf is doing with the counterculture is interesting at least. So I just wanted to get your take on Wolf and representations of the American counterculture in this story and, and what your thoughts are about what he's doing. So I think that there's definitely a way to read this story as being written by a, a middle-aged man working a, a white collar job and living in the suburbs with a wife and uh, a, a brood of, of children being uncomfortable with the sexual mores and the drug use of people who are 10, 20 years younger than him. I think that's a part of what's going on here. But, you know, we were speculating last time about maybe something a little bit more specific, right? About really in what ways is Wolf actually encountering that culture, right? In what ways is someone who's in his mid 40s encountering the sexual culture of people in their 20s, right? He's not really working with people in their 20s at the time that he's written this, or at least at the time that he's published this. And so probably at the time that he's written this, he's taken the job with plant engineering. And so he's uh, working uh, alone a lot, right? As he's out uh, doing the work of of, uh, interviewing people and uh, investigating stories and then uh, writing, which is a pretty solitary thing, even if he is doing that in an office. I don't know that in his day-to-day life, he's having a whole lot of interaction with that culture. And so there may be a couple of places that he might be getting it. And certainly one of them is going to be the television. And that might be something that might be part of the way that he's responding to it here is the way that it is framed on television. But I've actually come to really like my hypothesis that he's encountering this culture when he goes to cons. And not loving it, um, you know, he's maybe I don't know being asked to participate in uh, in drug use and possibly orgies up in someone's hotel room at, at Worldcon, and he's saying no, that's that's not what I'm here for, and is wondering about what that culture is is like. I mean, the, the, that's kind of that's maybe the uh, the crit fic, right? The sort of fiction that I am creating about the writing of this story here, because otherwise I don't really have much of an understanding of where Wolf would even be engaging with this culture. And I want to be clear that I am a man in his forties living in the suburbs with not a brood of, but with a child and the old, and I actually have a job where I interact with people in their twenties. I teach college, but I don't know anything about what their culture is like. I don't know any of their cultural references. I don't know what their lives are like in terms of like, you know, what romance or dating or any of that stuff is like for them, even though I engage with, interact with people in that demographic, uh, you know, every week, at least during the, during the school year. And so I'm just having a hard time envisioning how Wolf would really know anything about this either when, when I don't. Yeah, it, it is really puzzling, but he had his finger on the pulse of society on, on some level uh, and is certainly trying to make some sort of point. Uh, though this story, as we pointed out, really is caught up in, in 
the 1960s uh, counterculture, maybe even the 50s on some level. And so he's he's maybe reflecting back on that a little bit. But I, I'm glad you brought up the television because I think that's an important part of the resolution of this story where anything can be represented in any way. If it's written a certain way or designed by a certain way or uh, created to tell a story in a certain way. And certainly the computer is doing this. And I think Wolf is doing a little bit of a critique of the deception of mass media at the end of the story to kind of maybe put an exclamation point at the end of his uh, what could be read as a kind of get off my lawn rant about <laughs> uh, the youth and saying that, but we all participate in this. We all rely on certain forms of deceptions that are transmitted to us in order to feel comfortable. So the it could be that the youth are doing this. I don't know if I'm only getting it from TV. Uh, and I think that's kind of the phantoms of the mutiny that Wolf is building own, uh, his own critique of the story by the time we get to the end of it, his own critique of the uh, values he's criticizing, maybe. And, and, and as I said before, I think uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, which was written you know, way after the story, is a great lens into what I believe is the type of uh, cultural criticism, if any is to be found in the story. Wolf has asked us not to do that in the introduction. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that vein of cultural criticism is the same type of vein, that McLuhan-esque vein that uh, Wolf is engaging with. But let's put all of this behind us now and talk about you know the mysteries of the story, some of the themes, the literary references, and their meanings. And this has to start with a discussion of uh, the looking at this story in terms of it being a Faustian story. And I'll just give some evidence for why it is a Faustian story. Uh, the main character is called Johann, the first name of the character Faust. Uh, Emil refers to Johann as betrothed to fortune, which is a kind of translation of the last name Faust. And we talked about that in a, in a prior episode, that it could be like a cutesy nickname as well, um, that the main character's name could indeed be Johann Faust. The three named women in the story are all named for variations of Gretchen or Margaret or Marguerite, who was Faust's love interest. She is a Beatrice type figure in Goethe's Faust. And by Beatrice here, I'm talking about Dante, the, the feminine ideal of the kind of love that is a salvation to mankind or a man in general, a Virgin Mary archetype. We have a diabolic cult as well, a uh, computer system sarcastically referred to as God, and that computer system is sort of what Johann ends up using uh, to save his skin at the end of the story when his plan fully comes together. Um, though, Glenn, I'm, I'm more keen on your reading of Johann not really siding with it, but using the circumstances to gain the advantage that he needs to enact his plan. And the more I think about the way that the rat is spliced in with the computer, I think that's an image that is meant to relate to us that they're a cult, the magic cults and the computer system and all of this mutinous contingent are on the same moral or ethical side of the story. But I, I want to know if you see any other parallels with Faust here, any Thing, really just in Goethe's Faust. I am not super familiar with that. I don't know how familiar you are with that work. I'm way more familiar with Marlowe's Faust. Um, but this is this is what we've got. Wolf is definitely giving us a Faustian type of 
story here. And this is the second time here in 2021 that we have been dealing with Faust on one podcast or another. We've, we've just published our episodes over on Elder Sign about the uh, Roger Zelazny novella For a Breath I Terry, which has a, a lot of Faust stuff going on there. Though there as well, you and I maybe shrugged our shoulders at the Faust stuff a little bit and said, no, this is Job. This is a Job story, not a Faust story. And, and, and that's absolutely true. Goethe's Faust opens with... Uh bargain between God and Mephistopheles the same way Job does. So they're all commingled here. Right. And I have gone back and and read Faust for the first time in a a very long time. Uh, I actually have a very old copy of Faust. I mean, this is from 1990, 1991, something like that. It was a gift to me from the the wife of the pastor at the church that I went to when I was a kid who had done her PhD at the University of Chicago on Faust, her PhD in German literature on Faust, uh, gave that to me when I was, I guess I must have been 12 or 13 or something like that when she gave that to me. And I really loved it when I read it at the time, but it's not something that has stuck with me. And in fact, like you, I'm much more familiar now with the Christopher Marlowe version of of Faust than I am with Goethe's uh, version of Faust. And so I'm not really sure that I can speak to the things that Goethe is doing versus the things that Marlowe is doing. But just to think of Faust maybe almost as a kind of pop cultural figure and what does Faust represent if someone invokes something as Faustian, right, that we're we're talking about really one of the archetypes of the mad scientist character as someone who is going to meddle with forces that ought not to be meddled with in order to achieve something that ought not to be achieved. And that we're really getting that in kind of the, the skin and the kind of tone of this story. I think more than we're getting that, certainly in the story of Johan, at least as far as I understand it. I I guess what I'm trying to get around to here is I'm having a hard time reading Johan as a Faust character, even though there are all these diabolical elements in the background of this story and the use of, of the shadow creatures and some of the character names and well, the fact that, you know, German is ever present in the story all suggest that we're supposed to be in this mood of Faust. I just don't really see the plot showing up here. Right. I suppose that we're really dealing with somebody who was being offered all of these deals about how to improve the life, how to get ahead uh, of the rat race, you know, with rank or how to get the girl of his dreams to love him or how to, uh, make the world right by siding with the computer. I think basically, you know, all of these factions are the diabolic factions. They're all Mephistophelian. Um, and Johann has this copy of the Doré New Testament and ends up letting all of these devils cancel themselves out and then makes a move at the end, uh, which is why I see a kind of humanist reading, because we don't see a God figure in this story really rescuing Johan. It's just his character. It's in that sense, the story's, you know, a a comedy um, that the fruits of his character end up being what wins the day rather than his uh, failures of character. And I think in that way, we're seeing a foul story. And I think the only, you know, God we get in this story is that Johan is reading the New Testament, uh, though he's reading that not on the page because he's too busy reading G.K. Chesterton's <laughs> poems. 
Well, I think that's an awesome reading of the Faustianness of this story that that I think was just kind of lost on me. And so I, I really appreciate that. And I do want to meditate a little bit on the computer as God in this story and how I think that it really is important, though I hadn't thought of it until you presented it this way, but I do think it's really important that Johann rejects that idea, that Johann is not going to be the the servant of the computer, though I think that it is probably the case that the reason the computer now has increased the odds of the ship's survival, that Johann is in charge, uh, the computer has done that because Johann has consulted with the computer and has now gotten rid of the captain who would not. But then at the end, Johann is rejecting that, right? Because Johann is not going to consult with a god who's been created by other people, which frankly, I think is the way that he would characterize all of the occult stuff going on on the ship as well. We're going to see this happen again, right? In the Wolf canon. What's different here is that we don't get an explicit outsider, but there might be something of that in this story, or certainly there's there's some real strong parallels looking ahead between Johan and Pantera Silk, as you pointed out in one of the recap episodes. Right. I, I think the germ for the Book of the Long Sun is really to be found in this story on so many levels. Uh, the, the pantheon, the commingling of paganism and early Judaism or Christianity, uh, the women representing archetypes. It's all it's all here in silhouette. I, I do want to talk about the women now whose the named women in the story are all named, as I said, for variations of Marguerite or Gretchen. And we're going to get into what this might mean in a little bit, but I wonder if you think that there is a parallel between all of these women having the same name and Johan attracting this silhouette, which is maybe a big theme of this story, this doubling or trebling of personality uh, across multiple entities or people. We get this moment where the shadow says it's supposed to be representing Johan's will or desire. But in, in this scene where Johan is probably having sex with grit, Johan imitates the shadow. So I just wonder if there's a parallel between that and the names of the women. And I'm going to get into more than that a little bit. I just want to get your take on that before we really talk about the symbolic nature of the psychological aspects of this story. Well, I think psychological aspects is a real interesting way to look at this. Uh, We've got a group of three, right? Anytime we've got a group of three uh, and we're after, I I think, what, 1905 or so, then we certainly should at least attempt to graft the id, ego, and superego Freudian paradigm onto it. And we know that Wolf is interested in this paradigm. And we've known that since the second episode that we did, the uh, when we covered House of Ancestors. Uh, but I do think that there are other ways to do this as well. If we're thinking about groupings of, of three women, this is something that features prominently in all sorts of Indo-European uh, mythologies or, or Indo-European re- religious stories. Uh, we can think of, uh, you know, and we can just pull on even the same mythological or, or religious l- images that Wolf is using here in this story, the uh, Greco-Roman, the classical Mediterranean religious images, and see groups of three women all over those religions from uh, the Fates and the the Furies uh, and, and, and many more as well. And this often shows up in even in our pop culture today, right, where we've got the idea of uh, the three women uh, and of the three women as the 
young woman, the maid or the virgin that will be called, and then the the mother, who's a sort of middle aged type of woman, and then the, the the crone is often what this third person will be called. But you know, we could maybe just say grandmother or old woman, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> or uh, witch even. <laughs> yeah, retire. I don't know. I think I prefer retiree <laughs> or senior citizen there. I think rather than crone, you know, but. Uh, and so that might be another thing that we could try to graft onto these characters as well. Uh, we're told explicitly, of course, right, that Gretchen is new, so maybe she's the the maid. Um, I'm not sure this really works out very well because I wouldn't know what to do with Grit necessarily in this, other than that we've talked already about how Gretchen about how we've other than that we've talked already about how Gerda is maybe something more akin to who Johan is himself and so you know I think we know Johan is about 40 maybe even in his early 40s at this point and and maybe Gerda is two or something like that but that at any rate that they are looking for the same thing which is to uh find a spouse and to start a, a family, which maybe we could read as being the, the matron uh, part of that. But I'm not sure this reading works very well. And, and it might be that the id, ego, and superego might work better. We're going to jump jump into that in a little bit, but I want to stick with this this sense of the story and approaches to the story from literary contexts. Um, but we will be moving into this uh, psychological piece in just a moment. and I, But now I want to zoom out from thinking of the story, story as purely Faustian, and Goethe's Faust, Goethe's Faust is a play, um, and we have noted on many occasions that this, more than every other wolf, wolf story we've read, uh, feels like a play, in that we're given dialogue and some mise-en-scene, or like the set dressing and the environment, but very little in way of stage direction and action and other essentials that really animate the visual medium, though there are some gorgeous visuals in this story as well. Robert Borsky, who's a wolf scholar, has pointed out that he sees a lot of elements of the mystery play genre in silhouette. And mystery plays are a medieval genre of literature, of uh, plays and stagecraft in which characters act out biblical stories, often as archetypal characters like Adam or Jesus. I think Borsky makes an excellent point here, connecting, you know, Wolf's broken leg trope that we find in this story with Jesus. And then he connects uh, a really popular mystery play or scene in a mystery play, The Harrowing of Hell, with the end of the story and Johan running through the ship. Um, you know, And The Harrowing of Hell is a, a, a moment in the play or even a play that stands alone. It's the point where Christ, after the crucifixion, descends into hell and rescue those, rescues those people who have demonstrated their righteousness from the beginning of time, uh, but because there was no way for them to really... Uh, place their faith in Christ, heaven wasn't open to them. So this is Christ rescuing all of the righteous from unjust or undue uh, punishment or lingering in hell and entering heaven. This is like the final scene in the story. And we even get this kind of gravitational shift, this movement from below to above um, with Johann slipping out of his sandals and the promise that Johann is going to return to the, sh the ship to proper order with him in charge uh, with the help of maybe the avenging spirit, the shadow, that could be another way to read it. The representation, Johann's external representation of his pure ideals, his goodness. And incidentally, all of the action of this story could be said to be taking place in 
hell. <laughs> We're a kind of hell. <laughs> uh, it's beyond the realm of Pluto, uh, the ruler of Hades, as we pointed out. It is under the light of the demon star. And this is a kind of dead space. This is a place that needs rescuing rather than the planet Neuerdrat representing a new Eden. But but this is all really just to say, apart from pointing out Robert Borsky's work on the story, that we ought to be looking at the morality of the story, the ethics of the story. You know, what kind of ethical system is Johann caught up in? What kind of God does he believe in? What does he believe the good ought to be? What good needs to be restored? And we've already talked about the gender and, and sexual politics of this story, which is certainly an ethical concern. Um but how do you think this sense of the story as a morality play represents, you know, but, but thinking of the story as a, as a kind of morality play or a mystery play, how do you think Wolf represents the moral and ethical decay that needs to be set right? Why are we maybe blind to it as readers unless we're paying close attention? I think Borsky is definitely right in in seeing this as as a type of mystery play and and seeing Johann as something of of a Christ figure as as well. Uh, though there certainly are ways in which Johann is not a Christ figure, or, or or really what I mean is that there are there are important things that happen to Christ that do not happen to Johann in this story. Although that is how Wolf does this, right? No one is ever a complete Christ in a in a Wolf story, but people have attributes of Christ, and I think that uh, Borsky is right to pin that onto uh, to Johann here, who is essentially ushering in a new order and also making a a kind of new covenant with people that at the same time is looking back to a, an earlier covenant with with God or an earlier way of doing things and is trying to both uh, restore and renew at the the same time i think that that's the the mission that johan is is on here but you're absolutely right that the the moral decay is kind of hidden from us. Uh, the the sex stuff is overt and super uncomfortable, but it's almost so overt that it hides from us many of the other things that are going on. Wolf is much more subtle about the the breakdown of the command structure, though that is clearly an indication that something is is going wrong. But then there are also all of these gothic elements that Wolf has woven into this story. I mean, this is a space gothic story, which is not a thing that I necessarily thought existed, though uh, now <laughs> I, I, I clamor for more space gothic stories. But the ship is old right and it's it's a generation old it's it's not maybe functioning quite as well as it should i mean we definitely get that sense in the opening that it's even breaking down materially although we know that that's actually not true that's the first image that we get in the story but we know that there are there are rats on the the ship the 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 social order is totally broken down in fact one thing that i would posit is that it is not at all clear to us that the sex system on the ship is something that was present in the social order or the command structure of the ship when they launched. That this might even be an adaptation of life to space that the crew, uh, the captain, have taken upon themselves. That might even be part of the, the decay. The library is not functioning anymore. The library has turned into a gambling den, Brandon. I mean, that's if that's not moral <laughs> decay, I don't know what is, right? Uh, so there are all of these things going on here. But Johan is the only person who loves the ship the way the ship was meant to function when they launched 17 years ago. Both the physical ship itself, he appreciates the beauty 
of it. He's attuned to it. He doesn't find living on it oppressive. In fact, he finds living on it almost uplifting. It's almost aspirational for him. But then also uh, thinking of the ship as the the people inside of it, the the, the crew who make up the, the, the ship, that he is the only person left, at least of the people who have not been frozen the whole time, uh, who who still maintains a real sense of the the spirit of their mission rather than the letter of their mission. And I think that's a pretty big element of the story that the, the captain and almost everyone else wants to carry out the letter of the the mission rather than the spirit of it, which is to save humanity. Johan wants to save humanity, not himself. Right. And I think that's why it's easy for him to ally himself or at least gain the trust of the Marine Commandant, which happens off page, uh, but that they both want the same things. They are both oriented towards the original intent of what this ship is here to do uh, and maybe also what Gretchen represents to Johan in the story as well. well. Let's return now to the kind of psychological elements of the shadow and the three women whose names are all variations of the same tune. Um, you brought up Freud, the, the id, the ego, and the superego. But because this story is silhouette and it's caused up so much with shadows, <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking more along the, the Jungian representation of the id and or the, young, the Jungian idea of the shadow, the uh, kind of spirit, the element of the unconscious that controls our both, both our creative and destructive tendencies that really needs to be confronted and integrated into having a full self. And, you know, this story is really caught up with these le levels of analysis. And it, it has these moments where Wolf goes in depth about how we break down concepts, be it physical objects, you know, into their cellular structure or uh, microbial life, to planets, to ships, personalities, how all these things are being, we're able to analyze them in their constituent parts and then they can coalesce into something larger, either a larger concept like the self, which is a kind of unity of the aspects of the unconscious, or cells coalescing into a body, or the life that takes place on the body that's invisible, or a tangle of plant life fighting for life coalescing into a planetary landmass. All of these are major themes of the story. And so I wonder if some level I wonder if on some level this story isn't just explicitly about uh, the integration of the modes of the unconscious into a self. We've kind of hinted at that on some level. Um, but the shadow might just simply be the Jungian shadow, the th and that and then therefore that represents that this is the last thing that Johann kind of needs to integrate into himself. Uh, Johann was also big into psychic abilities, and Jung was also really big into psychic abilities and the power of the mind, uh, the power of storytelling, the power of the spirit, and so I think this is all uh, part and parcel of what's going on here. The three G characters, the three women, might represent a dissociated self. Like one of them could be the persona, the mask of the self. The other one is the shadow. Maybe another one is the anima, which is the one that represents the mirror aspect of our personality that are found in the archetypes of the other gender. Um, 
and I don't know if we need to break all that down right now. That might be fun for our listeners to do and think about. Uh, but I just wonder if this is a kind of a compelling reading to you, especially given that the epigraph text, as we brought up, is called a psychological shipwreck, which is the tearing apart of a ship. And so could it be that this is a story, as we pointed out, maybe about maturity, maybe about the integration of the personality, accepting the darker sides of ourselves, and then taking control of them to make something better. Uh, the ship does this on the level of it being a superstructure, it being a computer program, and it having this kind of microbial life of human life within it itself. How, how would you take a reading like that? Do you think that helps explain, that has some explanatory power to uh, pick apart or bring together the themes of this story and all of the disparate elements that Wolf has thrown in here? Uh, short answer is, yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, this is the part of the story that really puzzled me. And it's also the part of the story that I was least interested in. If I were going to pitch this story to someone to say, this is a story that you should read. I know you're not a big reader or a sci-fi reader or a wolf reader, but this is a story you should check out. I would probably leave out any of the stuff about the the shadow when I'm pitching this story. For me, this would be a, a space marine story is probably how I would pitch this to people or a mutinous psychotic ship computer story. Those are the ways that I would pitch this story. That's kind of where it lives in my imagination and in, in, in my head canon. But so, and so I really like the, the reading of this that you are pitching here because it does bring all of these elements in together. And I think one of the things that we've not done so far in thinking about the shadow and maybe the, the mystical, the, the numinous stuff that's going on in this story is to ask what the shadows are up to or the shadow is up to and we've also not really taken stock of the fact that hey johan's teleporting places like he's actually got magic powers <laughs> by the end of this story these are things that we have not really addressed yet yeah that's a great point and i'm also of a mind with you that i just don't know what to do with that stuff in the story apart from looking at it as a kind of Jungian exploration of personality and integration and the spirit that governs us and that this shadow is something that Johan has stayed asleep to in himself. He has gone on keeping himself literally apart and separated from all of the stuff that's going on the ship because he doesn't want to know. He doesn't want to know who's engaged with what activities. And all of that is kind of in a, a lack of integration of the shadow. He doesn't want to be aware of what the knowledge will awaken in him, what it will cause him to do, how it will make him act once he's aware. So he's literally asleep and has failed to take into account the material facts of the world that he lives in because he doesn't want to integrate that into himself. And by the end of the story, he's forced to, and it gives him these new abilities, these new powers, these new strengths from which he can govern from, um, though it is not without its dangers. The shadow both endangers him and protects him from danger. Um, the women, by the time we get to the end of the story, we're really down to Goethe, which is... Grit has been taken by the shadow, which does represent Johann's desire in some way. It is equivalent to the id in a very loose sense. 
and it does act based on Johan's will or what it perceives Johan's will to be. By the end of the story, Grit is gone. She is subsumed by the shadow, uh, which is to say that his need for her to represent something is no longer necessary for him to go on with his life. And Goethe remains the, the soul remainder of the three women, which, which indicates maybe a kind of coalescence of these three parts of the personality. And I guess that's what's going on here. Plus teleportation. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with the shadow part of this story other than read it almost as purely symbolic, though it is a material fact of the story. No, I agree completely. And I think this is the big thing that we're going to want to turn to the, the, the forum that we're going to want to turn to listeners for to, to help us out with. And this will be a great way to start a conversation about this story, a larger conversation about this story is to try to try to really crack this for us. Yeah. And I, and I have to say, you know, th- this, uh, appeal to to young is something that i haven't been able to work through completely though i'm sure given time i will convince myself of it entirely <laughs> uh and and start fighting people on the forum if they have a different <laughs> reading though though time will tell uh i would love to hear more about this because this is just a thought i had because i don't know what to do with this part of the story otherwise well we've been going for a long time and there's just one more section I want to to cover here just to point out uh, some other readers appreciation of the story and maybe engage with the story in the spirit that Wolf intended from his introduction that we read you know an hour ago or so <laughs> uh, so I want to end by just talking about the craft of this story and in doing so as I said I'm gonna read a bit of Ken Stanley Robinson's piece uh, about Wolf from the New York Review of Science Fiction. And this is really a craft note, though there's some other great stuff in here as well. This is what Kim Stanley Robinson says. We come to my favorite formal innovation of Wolf's, which I call the slingshot ending. By this, I mean a story in which the events begin to speed up as the narrative nears its end. And the story ends precisely at the moment of maximum acceleration into some new state, with the reader left to ponder open-mouthed what has been portended. Silhouette is the first great example of this device. Wolf seems to have liked it too, as he used it again later in other stories and in some of his finest novels. I suggested to him once that his editor, David Hartwell, had requested a fifth volume to follow the Book of the New Sun, because he simply could not stand for such a monument of a work to have a slingshot ending, which it does. <laughs> Wolf laughed and agreed, and then said something like, but I got him in the end, because the Earth of the New Sun has an even bigger slingshot ending. <laughs> <laughs> and the ending of the Book of the Long Sun speeds off towards the Book of the Short Sun in a similar fashion. It's a great formal device or technique, and I believe Wolf's invention. The acceleration of the slingshot ending is a matter of pacing, which involves not only changes in sentence structure that hurry the reader along, but also a shift in how much action each sentence conveys. Wolf shifts his pacing everywhere in his stories very freely, creating wonderful rhythmic effects in the flow in the, in the flow of the telling, the, sl- the slingshot effect, among others. He can be stately or pell-mell classical, or jazzy. It's one of the many ways I am often surprised by him in my reading. 
Just as there is no knowing what the content of the next sentence is going to be, there is also no telling if it will cover a second or a year or stand outside time entirely. What joy after too many volumes written entirely at the same pace, either plotting or frenetic, but in any case ever so predictable and painful to one's urge to flow or bop. In this, one falls on Wolf's pages as on music after a metronome. So as I said, in keeping with the introduction to Endangered Species, I want to switch gears out of critical review mode a little bit and just wear the reader and fan hat for this section. Um, but I, I and just want to talk about it in terms of enjoyment, um, but also in terms of whether it worked or not. I also just want to start by getting your reaction on this on this piece by Kim Stanley Robinson. I love the term slingshot ending. I've not heard it before. I hadn't read this this piece. I mean, Ken Stanley Robinson is a huge fan of of Gene Wolfe. I mean, he's commented on a lot of Wolfe's short fiction, not just the the major works. I mean, he's a real serious reader of Gene Wolfe, and of course, they were they were friends as well. Uh, so I'm really glad to have this term slingshot ending from Kim Stanley Robinson. And frankly, it's a, it's a device. Uh, now that I know there's a name for it, I want to start using it in my own stories. I was monumentally impressed by the, the pacing of this story, especially as someone who normally complains about the end of stories. You always, I think I'm on record as saying that I like the beginnings of stories far more than the ends of stories. And really, if it were up to me, I'd probably only ever read act ones of, of stories. But I don't think that's true for Gene Wolfe, especially when he uses this technique. So I'm, I'm really glad that you, uh, you've read that for us. I was so glad to come across it and read this. And, and you can catch a love for Gene Wolfe's work, you know, the writing is almost contagious in, in terms of its forcing you to really appreciate and rethink Wolfe's craft and ability to write. And I don't have too much more to say about the craft of this because I think Kim Stanley Robinson nails it. This is exactly what's going on in this story. And the technical aspects are there in a way that I don't think I could fully communicate my appreciation and awe of at least not as well as Kim Stanley Robinson does. So I just want to move on to just our sense of the story here, uh, rather than getting into technical craft. Did this story fully work for you, Glenn? Did you enjoy the reading experience of it? Uh, was it too full of ideas? Was it just right? I mean, just in general, what are your opinions of this story, uh, Silhouette? By Gene Wolfe. Well, I have a lot to say about that, but I want to go back to Kim Stanley Robinson for just a minute here because it has just occurred to me that his novel Aurora, which is a book that I really loved, is also space gothic and, and may actually be able to be read as a kind of companion piece or response to Silhouette. I, I don't know if there's any chance we'd ever actually get to interview Kim Stanley Robinson for our podcast, but if we could, that would be awesome. And I think those are some connections, some parallels that uh, I would enjoy talking to him about. And I highly recommend Aurora to anyone who loved this story. It, it, even if you loved it half as much as I did, because I did love this story a lot. Uh, I think if I were you know, ranking all of the stories that we did in this batch, or certainly if I was ranking all of the novellas that we did in this massive batch of stories that had, I don't know, what did we do, six or seven novellas in the last two years, something like that, <laughs> uh, setting aside The Fifth Head of Cerberus as a standalone, I think this is a second only to Tracking Song for me, and, and a really close second. In fact, I think whether or not I rank Tracking Song above Silhouette or vice versa might depend a little bit on my mood, maybe the time of day, whether it's sunny or cloudy out, something like that, because I absolutely i'm in love with this story i have loved every story that wolf has written that is a a 
science fiction story in the kind of golden age sense of that, meaning that it takes place in space. It's on a spaceship. We're going to another planet and checking it out. I have really loved Wolf's interpretations, Wolf's spin on those classic science fiction setups. And and here we get him looking at human beings going to uh, a new world, maybe to colonize it. They're encountering uh, a really cool, really neat alien ecosystem and actual sentient alien maybe are involved in this story as well. But of course, there's politics on the ship and there's high stakes and high drama. I mean, this is classic space opera stuff, but Wolf has turned this into a commentary on our own society, a commentary on who we are as people and and who we might be. And he's turned it into a story full of literary illusions and also uh, mysticism as well. It's a real masterpiece in just in terms of of genre and archetype and theme, but it is also extremely well-written. We did a lot of reading of passages uh, in the recap episodes. We've done a little bit of it here as well, because just sentence for sentence, this is a gorgeous story. And even then thinking about the structure of the story, not just the wordsmithing of it, right? As, as as Robinson has pointed out, this slingshot ending is just a magnificent storytelling device where the story speeds up just when it needs to so that we don't get bogged down in the execution of the plot at the end. And I also love Wolf's technique that we have seen before, but I think is really dialed up to 11 here, though it's going to get dialed up to, I don't know, 20 at some point in Wolf's career, which is how much is happening between the lines or between the section breaks. But that is a feature of this story that I love as well. I'm really high on this story. How about you? Yeah, I I feel the same way. There is more work to be done on this story for me. Approaching it as a casual reader, I think I'd have to read this story two or three times. And in fact, that's the pleasure of it. Reading it for this podcast, of course, I've read it two or three times in a row. But The real pleasure for me is going to be in a year when I think about this story again and pick it up and it's going to be a different story because all of the ideas, all of the madness of it, all of the stuff that's in there that's not quite fitting or hangs together in strange ways, the presence of the shadows and the presence of the teleportation and astral projection, all the stuff that I am... all the stuff that my brain is like feeding on is going to provide a new experience when I read this story again. And it's one of the wolf stories we've read in this batch that I am actively looking forward to in six months, a year from now, picking back up and reading for fun and seeing how it's changed, how my reading of it has changed in the intervening time. And, and that is one of the reasons why I go to wolf. My brain just, as I said, feeds on the ideas. And then when I pick it up again, it's a new experience. And I know this story is going to provide that for me. Yeah, same same here. While you were describing this, I was envisioning uh, three years from now, probably when we do The Road So Far Part 2, which will be the episode we do before we start the book of The New Sun, when we reflect on everything that we've read from or, or including The Fifth Head of Cerberus and then up to whatever it is that we're reading right before, whatever short story that we will have finished right before The, the Book of The New Sun and talking about what we see in those stories, the common themes and, and story craft really just kind of 
kind of assessing that phase of Wolf's career before we move into the book of the new son. But my sense right now is that Silhouette is a real uh, turning point in Wolf's uh, Wolf's writing, that this might actually in some ways be the end of that phase. And even though I've just said we're like three years away from, from actually ending that phase of the podcast, that's because what we've got left is uh, a handful of short stories and, and novellas, but we have Peace and we have uh, The Devil in the Forest left. Both of those books, even though they were published in 1975 and 1976, respectively, uh, were written already in 1972, meaning they predate the writing of Silhouette, but that's not the order that we're going in. We're going in order of publication date on our chronological journey. Uh, Silhouette, to me, feels like it's got one foot in the the realm of things we've read before, but has another foot in the realm of things that we know are to come in Wolf's work, that this has a real foot in the the solar cycle in ways that I don't know that we've seen anything else, including the fifth head of Cerberus, have yet. I think that is a great point and a great stopping point for this discussion episode. I know we've left a lot on the table, and there's a lot uh, in this story that we just didn't have time to get to in this discussion. We'd love to continue our discussion of this story with you on the forum, uh, be it Reddit or on ClayTempleMedia.com. For now, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDormand. And Brandon, I just before we really sign off here, I have to say... We did it. This is actually the end of this batch of stories. We are going to be moving on to peace next. We did 37 episodes on the fifth head of Cerberus. And when we were done with that, we thought we were going to spend nine months or so on the next batch of stories, this batch of stories before getting to peace. It has actually been twice that long. It's been a year and a half, a little over a year and a half. In fact, it also took us more episodes. We actually did 40 episodes in this batch of, of stories. Uh, that did also include several commissioned episodes, at least least two live shows. We did our, our listener show to celebrate episode 100. We had a guest on La Bafana. This was a much bigger section of the, the podcast's life than I anticipated it was going to be when we got to this point. But wow, has it been fruitful. Uh, I'm a little sad to see it go, even though I am very much looking forward to starting peace. Well, the good news is we can take the advice of uh, of of Dr. Death and know that when we open the covers of these books, the stories will still be there for us. And I'm sure we will have so many different opinions and understandings of these stories as time goes on, as we're enriched by conversations with our listeners about what they think is going on. This has been a big project, uh, this section of the podcast. Part of the reason why we did so many more episodes than we intended is because there was so much more to the stories than we even guest. Uh, but we are grateful for everybody who supported us along the way and really look forward to the next phase. Yes, this was a lot to do. So we are going to take our customary break to get refreshed before we start on Peace, which is a book that we've both been really looking forward to covering for a, a long time. And we want to be uh, well rested and refreshed for that. So we are going to be back on April 13th with the, the first episode on Peace, which I will say as well here, of course, we'll talk about that in the first episode. That is a book that we are going to savor. We're going to take our time reading through Peace. And in the meantime, until April 13th, we hope you'll uh, take the opportunity to check out some of the other shows 
shows that we do on the network that you, you may not be listening to. We have been talking about Star Trek a lot during our coverage of Silhouette. We do a Star Trek show here on the network. So if you like Star Trek, or uh, even if you don't know that much about Star Trek, but would like to learn a little bit about what Star Trek is all about or up to uh, as you're on your way to work or bench pressing or doing your dishes or whatever, uh, we'd love it if you would check out Lower Decks. Valor and I have a lot of fun over on that show. And of course, Brandon and I also do Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast where we have just released a pair of episodes uh, about the Roger Zelazny novella that we mentioned earlier here on this episode, For a Breath I Tarry, uh, that may have some thematic resonances here with this story as well. We've also recently done a story by Gabriel Garcia Marquez that we both really enjoyed. We've got some really great stuff coming up on Elder Sign this year as well. And also in the meantime, we're going to throw an extra episode up on Patreon. We're going to cover the Gene Wolfe story, Straw. This is a story that I invoked actually when we were covering Tracking Song, and I said, and I, and I was being really cagey about it when I did. I was seeing parallels between the two of them and then said something along the lines of, and maybe we'll cover this story that I'm refusing to name right now if our Patreon supporters ever vote for it, and then totally forgot they already had not voted for it. It had already been on a ballot. Wolf had already written that story. So uh, we're going to go ahead and cover that uh, as an extra bonus episode, a bonus bonus episode, if you will, on Patreon next month as well. But until we are back with peace, we greet you and say farewell.